Welcome to Black Mountain Radio. I'm Erica Vitale Lazar, a writer, curator, and majorette in Christopher Tracy's parade. And I'm Sara Ortiz, a curator, a literary dynamo, and the middle child of three siblings, meaning that I'm constantly in the middle of some kind of triangulation. <laughs> in the middle, mediator and activator. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio to you, my sister Sara, and to everyone who is listening. All right, Erica. So in my family, my mom's rice is infamous. And not just in my family, there are people who know my mom's rice. And this isn't a recipe that was passed down. It's a recipe of her own creation. And no one, to my knowledge, has replicated it in the way that she has made it. I'm also convinced that she does a little something to it that she's not telling me. But whenever I make rice... I will pour the rice into a bowl. I'll place that bowl under a a running faucet, and I'll watch the water turn from a clear to that milky color. And whenever I try to make her beans, when I pour out that bag of beans onto the counter and I look through it and pull aside the stones or the beans that are not entirely whole, I know that my mom has done that, and I know that my tia has done that, and I know that my grandmother and her mother and her mother have all done that. I feel like I am the woman before me. Hmm. I love that image. It's almost like quilting, hmm. repeating those recipes of that lineage, that line of women. And you're adding your square to that quilt. And it's a quilt that has covered your family for generations. I know that you and your sister and your mom will make dinner for your family. And what I love about you in particular, you're vegan. So you don't eat a lot of the food that your mother or her mother eat. But you participate in the preparation of it and and making it for your family. You too have become your mother and her mother in doing so. Yes, it's true. And it's a wonder to me that I don't sit down and dine on the same meals. But in preparing the same meals, mixing the cornmeal with buttermilk, turning chicken over in its skillet as it fries, all of these things allow me to recreate those acts of care that were so lovingly showered on me. You know, it's a tie to those moments when someone made you feel loved and full And they made sure that you were fed. Mm. And food is a sign. It's a sign of who you are and where you come from. Yes, absolutely. In our next segment, two women discuss food's ability to heal and liberate. One of them is Cheyenne Kyle of the Abodo Collective, a Vegas-based nonprofit that you co-founded, Erica, which also focuses on bringing structural, ongoing support to marginalized communities, many of which experience prolonged food insecurity. Cheyenne worked in the kitchens of some of Las Vegas's celebrated restaurants on the Strip and at the end of the night was distressed at the plates, the platters, and sometimes the crates of food going to waste. You have to really hear her talk about that experience. She's so passionate about the pain that she felt in witnessing that Mm. firsthand, particularly knowing that right down the road, there were people who were going without. Food activism begins for her there. Cheyenne is in conversation with Chef Jocelyn Jackson, 
Jocelyn founded Justice Kitchen and co-founded People's Kitchen Collective to continue to create food experiences that inspire people to reconnect with themselves and with the earth and with one another, but specifically with the goal of collective liberation. Jocelyn's work is what she calls radical hospitality, holding space for community and for healing food experiences for people of color. To feed someone is an act of love and protest. There's a civil rights tradition of people putting themselves at risk to feed protesters or movement workers, making it plain that you are in service by feeding and caring. Food justice work may be one of the most powerful acts of resistance and repair, insisting that we have a right to be cared for and to be well, to be seen, to be recognized. Hi, Cheyenne. Can I call you Shy? Yes, yes. Thank All my you. friends do. Hi, Shy. So I'm expecting the digits. <laughs> I am Cheyenne Kyle, Food Programs Coordinator for the Aboto Collective, food equity activist, uh, lover of food, food cultivator. And this morning for breakfast, I had a leftover angry chick sandwich that I ate off of my chest because <laughs> adulting was a lot today. <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> it is real. I love I, that. I do want to, like, it was crazy. No bra or nothing. I was like, this is what's happening. This is where I'm at. I am Jocelyn Jackson. I am the founder of Justice Kitchen and the co-founder of People's Kitchen Collective, along with Sita Kuratomi Bomek and Sakib Kaval. And I love the fact that we get to sit here and speak about food and justice and creativity. And it really feels like Providence that I got to have an ancient grain this morning. I was able to eat a buckwheat atole with cinnamon and butter and coconut yogurt. And it was just the sweetness of being connected to ancestors through ancient grains. <laughs> oh, are we friends now. Perfect. <laughs> As we think about like the long list of activists and liberators, I always think about that that aha moment that kind of led them on their path. And if you could take a second to just describe what that was like when you were embarking on your projects, uh, Justice Kitchen and uh, People's Kitchen Collective. Thank you so much for that. And I'm, I'm grateful that you set the tone of keeping it personal because that feels like the powerful place to lead from. We can become an amalgam. We can put ourselves in categories. But what I found in my journey, and a very multidisciplinary journey, that was not a straight line. I love the nonlinear. I love asymmetry because it is about collecting a dynamic life. You know, these lived experiences that we uh, collect really dictate who we become. And in my case, I started out in fine arts. I moved on to studying law and becoming an attorney. And then I knew something was missing and I got a master's in environmental education, but it wasn't done yet. Plus being from the Midwest, you know, being born to a family where my mom is the oldest of 13 siblings, you know, this setting is part of my lived experience too. It is a testament to community that got me to my aha moment. I was able to have a birthday party where a friend of mine insisted on hosting and for me not to cook for, you know, those one of those first oh, rare moments, right? It's just like, okay, I give over. I surrender. Okay, good. <laughs> we can do this. I ended up cooking. Just one cake. Just a triple coconut cake. That's <laughs> just all. that. But it was really 
a beautiful moment when we created this circle in order to share blessings, right? Mm -hmm. And after one round of this, the common thread of that blessing circle was people reflecting back to me. I remember when you cooked this for me. I remember when that was what, I, what was served at the table. I remember how powerful that flavor was over and over, repeated over and over in different ways from different people in my life. And that was the moment of, okay, it doesn't have to simply be the thing that I love that's been a constant in my life. It can actually be the thing, the conduit of all these different disciplines that adds up to social justice, that adds up to connection and beloved community. It can be that. It can be that conduit. It can be that vessel. And it can be that ongoing joy because it's also the thing, the thing that resources me. You know, there's, there's things you can do in your life that are depleting. And I'm so grateful I found this nexus point where the thing that gives me most joy is also the thing that lifts me up and gives me the opportunity to be of service without feeling, you know, completely uh, depleted from the experience. I've had that relationship with food since I discovered it. And that was very similar to my personal aha moment where I was like, wait a minute, this is at the nexus of everything. This is something like a universal commonality that we all share. So there's something very special about this experience. There's that nostalgia, you know what I mean? That's the best thing about food to me, is, is being able to make something and somebody tell me, oh, that tastes just like how grandma used to make it. That's the best compliment ever because it just transports you back to that, that, that feeling, that moment, that time, it's so special. I love that you referenced that specifically, that transporting, that it's, a, it's also this connection and catalyst to ancestry mm. and to that relationship because it's, it's all about space and time when it comes down to it. Right. If food can, can literally transport us mm -hmm. into our ancestors' lived experience, whoa, Yeah, the power of that. Right. Right? Yes. All of our ancestors lived on our behalf, mm. you know? It is only because of them and their modes of survival, primarily based in food. Yes. Right? Yes. That got us to this point. And so when they say, you know, those, those beautiful comments around the thousands that are at your back mm -hmm. holding you, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I think about with food. This ingredient called okra was braided into someone's cornrows right. to get across that middle passage right. to feed my survival. Yes. That's how powerful food is to me. And I want it to be that way every day for everyone, because in that is a source of liberation and an insistence that everyone be nourished. Yes. I yes. don't want to take that story away from anybody. Right. I come across so many people that have that moment. Oh, I don't have any food traditions or I don't have I don't cook or, you know, all those things feel true to them. And I insist, whatever it is, don't shame or blame what your traditions are. A lot of it was stolen from you very intentionally to divorce yourself from your culture. So whatever you have right now, as a starting point. And we will reclaim and remember all the pieces that we have forgotten and need to remember or need to be excavated, but it's all there for us. It's a gift perpetually from our ancestors. Yes, I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. The reason why food access is such an issue is because people are robbed of those moments. But almost every good memory you ever had was over a plate of food. And so when people don't have access to it, you didn't have that experience where, you know, mom handed you a knife and an onion and said, chop that. 
all of those things that they they're so subtle and so like nuanced that we forget how impactful they are. Yes, part of me wanted to be, you know, this world-renowned chef and and everything, but it feels out of line. It feels out of order considering that these moments I'm able to create for people I love and I care about, other people can't do that. You know, that injustice, it felt unfair. So I was like, I can't I can't do this until I know everybody else is straight. That feels real because it is, uh, it feels like what you just said is connecting to the fact that it needs to be more than one discipline. It needs to yes. transcend the categories that our society places around you are a chef. Mm. You are this, this, that. you're a nutritionist, yeah. you're a dietitian, yeah. you are a life coach. You are, it's like, nah, you need to be all of it. <laughs> like, you do. You need you to do. really hybridize yeah. all the different disciplines that are required to be of service to uh, our community's liberation. Right. And that's not just cooking. I want to go back to this idea because I was mentioning very specifically a predisposition to optimism. Mm. And I want to go back to that specifically because I know that that's not a resource for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that I have it. But in that predisposition to optimism, what I get is the clear-eyed view into potential and possibility. And so when I look at this world that breaks my heart so often, Mm -hmm. what I can see is all these projects in play in my own community that are building the future that I want to live in, right? right? This liberated, free uh, future. And that world building is so essential. I see... So many people in the food world, in, in food systems, mm-hmm. who are insisting that we have another story, that we write another story, and it's often based in traditional knowledge, traditional wisdom. So it's not like we're making something up. Right. It is already in the world. We're simply reclaiming and remembering it mm-hmm. and putting it into action. So when I think about food justice, I don't want to keep it simple. I want to complicate that definition by extending it to... This idea that we are in a world where we can be multidisciplinary, even in the way that we think about justice. You know, there is this really sweet way of defining it. And Cornell West gave it to us. Justice is what love looks like in public. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if we have that, inf- if we have that as our information and, and definition, then food justice for me is really about each action and every decision, every choice we make for there to be equanimity within the space of food. How do you, within this work, as we both have identified, it's so much bigger than that, but just to use it as the term, you know, within this work, how do you replenish yourself? How do you recharge when you're going through times or spaces or situations where you feel a little stretched thin and how is it that Miss Jocelyn Jackson shows herself love? How do you show you that you are appreciated? I cook for myself mm-hmm. but I cook for myself on purpose. There are things in my repertoire you know, some yeah. meals for example, there's a tigadigina which is the peanut sauce from mm-hmm. Mali in West Africa When I cook that for myself, it's very specific. It gives me a specific feeling, a specific rejuvenating, because it's about the two years that I spent there. It's about the family that I was able to 
uh, be with and, and learn from when I was there. It's about the land that was there, cultivating the peanuts, cultivating the black-eyed peas from the continent. Yeah. Every time I make it, I'm called back to that, right? Yeah. I know that uh, for me and my experience, I didn't, I didn't love cooking when I first started doing it. I had to cook because my family is Belizean and that's what tradition dictates. If you were a young girl, you were in the kitchen, you learn how to cook. Um, and I actually had a little resentment towards it because I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do anything I was being forced to do. And um, I have this really, really profound moment where I look around my aunt's kitchen and there's generations of my family's women in this teeny tiny kitchen all cooking and singing and and playing drums and I was like this is incredible this is that was that was an aha moment everything that I learned about my culture I learned through a plate I hadn't I haven't been to Belize you know what I mean and I very very much you can't tell me I'm not Belizean <laughs> like you just can't but it's that precision. And it's like when we talk about the ancestors, there's no measuring spoon. There's no measuring cup. There's none of that. It's it's an attention to detail and a, something that does rival most, most um, five-star brigade kitchens. You know what I mean? That, that My auntie's kitchen ran like a well-oiled machine. Everybody knew what role they were supposed to play. You know, and and everything tasted great and was just so full of love in a moment like that. It's hard to not feel whole. It's hard to not feel, you know, that that love and that joy and that kind of completion. So we get to this point of describing it as an art form and understanding that my definition and it may be a little novice, but my definition is art is something that was created to elicit that emotional experience, right? And how then could something so beautiful not be considered art? Oh, Cheyenne. <laughs> Thank you for going there. I really appreciate it. And what you just said at, at the end there is really at the heart of it. Mm. Elicit feeling, right? Art used to be about being beautiful. Mm. That was the philosophy of art. And now we're at this point and grateful as People's Kitchen Collective where we are a social art practice, right? Mm -hmm. And it's about, does it make you feel something? Yes, yes. And I feel like that's at the heartbeat of this work. I don't want it to stay at the table. Mm -hmm. I want us to have that moment with a plate of food that activates action in the streets yes like i'm not i am not satisfied by someone eating food and then it being done yeah i need the recipes the stories the ingredients mm -hmm. uh the exchanges from this the ex experience all of that all of that i need that to be a propulsion mm -hmm. for folks to leave this space enter their home community their family you know whatever it may be workspace mm -hmm. and for this to have ignited something in the world for them mm -hmm. that is about not, um, don't get me wrong, I'm all about burning some stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> but in this reality right here, it's about igniting something 
that is a warmth for our collective liberation. And I'm not naive. (laughs) Yes, I totally think it's possible. I am a person. I'm just a person, you know what I mean, who saw this thing and just couldn't let it stand that way. I just couldn't. And we all have that capability. All of us as individuals have that. It doesn't always have to be major or huge or giant, gigantic or drastic. But I believe we are all powerful as individual pieces. But each of those individual pieces, not one greater, not one lesser than the other, come together to form this even more powerful, spearheaded kind of movement that can just do absolute damage to the cages of the matrix that have been built. You know, Erica, we pursue food justice to make sure that we all have access to the sustenance we need to be well and access to the cultural traditions that sustain us. And for similar reasons, artist Carolina Caicedo is pursuing environmental justice through her work with waterways in the Americas, from Canada down to South America. Beautiful. More than 250 large hydroelectric dams are projected or are already under construction by the transnational corporations throughout Latin America. This means, in other words, that what would be a public and collectively owned resource is slowly being privatized. And Carolina is documenting the impacts of the dams with participatory performances, with photography, with geo-choreographies, and with audiovisual essays that are just stunning. That's powerful work. When we think about access to resources, it's clear the ways that capitalism is only concerned with convenience and with the present, and it traps you there. It actually relies on our being stuck in the compulsion, the desire of the moment. There are many dimensions to consciousness, but if you make a people believe that their present condition is reality, if you make sure they are so focused on survival in the present that they don't have time to imagine a reality in which they aren't dominated by these systems, then it's easy for the present to become a product, no longer an entity as Carolina treats the waters and waterways, but just something to be used and commodified. But water is meant to move into the future, to move all peoples into the future. Like that saying, you can't step into the same river twice. Mm -hmm. Water is change. Mm -hmm. And for corporations to come in and cut people off from bodies of water, they then cut them off from their future selves. The consequences of that individually and collectively, are dire. And that's what makes interventions like Be Damned so necessary and so valuable. Here's Carolina. One of the things I learned by working close to communities in resistance against dams is that the rivers for these communities are extensions of their bodies. That we're rooted in something that extends our body into the river, into the air, 
into the land, into the underground, into the spiritual world and connects us. And I prefer to think about rivers and other natural entities like that, and in that sense conjure them as common goods. My name is Carolina Caicedo. I am a visual artist from Colombia, born in London, living in Los Angeles. I am a multidisciplinary artist. I work with different mediums, drawing, sculpture, performances, publications, and I collaborate with a range of people, choreographers, communities in the front lines of environmental justice. I think about my art practice as a way to exert citizenship, to construct a better society. And, and I think about my, my practice as a way to question given notions about the natural world, society and capitalism as a given framework to exist. So Yuma is one of the ancestral names of the Magdalena River in Colombia. Magdalena is the colonized name. And Yuma is the name given by the local people, by the natives, to the upper body. And Yuma means the place where you meet your friends, because that's where you would go and trade with other towns and other communities, goods. It was a meeting place, a marketplace. So in the upper body, it's very fast. It breaks through canyons, and then it widens up into this mellow but kind of treacherous river. It has a lot of currents too. It feeds some amazing swamps. And historically, it's been kind of the backbone of the country, even pre-Hispanically. And even into today, it continues to be the economic and cultural and spiritual backbone of the country of Colombia, like we know it today. The Magdalena has been subjected to the construction of two dams so far, one in the late 80s called Betania, and one more recent called El Quimbo Dam. And it's just 30 kilometers upstream of Betania in the same department of Huila. Both Betania and El Quimbo Dams are hydroelectric dams, part of the master plan of development for the Magdalena River that contemplates 17 hydroelectric dams in a system that we know as hydrocascade, which means that the dams are very close to each other 30 to 50 kilometers of distance between them to generate electricity. These are large-scale dams. Think about 100 feet or higher. Think about dams like the Hoover Dam. 17 of those. Some a bit bigger, some a bit smaller. But this kind of scale and generating a lot of electricity. And the master plan also contemplates dredging the lower part of the river to create a hydroway for large barges and large container ships to transport all the oil, coal, and other minerals that are planned to be extracted from Colombia. So when you think about hydroelectric dams, you have to think about mining operations because the amount of electricity posed to be produced by these dams is not for domestic use, it's for industrial uses. Aluminum smelting, oil extraction, other kind of minings. A lot of people think about hydroelectricity as clean energy, but the truth is that the social environmental impacts are very high and then they never come alone, right? They're always paired with some sort of 
other industry coming along. In 2014, I had the privilege of speaking to Mamo Pedro Juan, who at that moment was the spiritual and political leader of the Kogi people from the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in Colombia. And he told me that all bodies of waters are connected and that when a dam is constructed, it disconnects the river from its brothers and cousins and sisters. What a dam does is that it breaks the body, this interconnected system. It starts separating it, breaking it up, right? He even told me that the effects of a dam was like having a knot in your anus. So it, it sickens a territory. It brings death. That's what a dam does. Not only to the river, but that to the communities who are connected through the rivers. So it not only separates the waters, but all the social activity, human and non-human, that happens along the waters. Reproductive cycles of fish are cut because there's no spawning anymore. You can't go up and down the river as a fish. And if there's no spawning up and down, nutrients are not carried up and down. The currents that bring down silt from the mountains stop feeding the river banks. So it's a chain of reactions that brings sickness. El Quimbo Dam, or El Quimbo Hydroelectric Project, built by Endesa Enel on the Magdalena River, impacted, according to the company, a number of towns. But the truth is that it impacted a whole region. The different towns of Huila, they started organizing under an association called Asoquimbo, Association of People Affected by El Quimbodan, because they had experienced what happened in the late 80s with Betania already, and they remembered. They were promised progress, they were promised cheaper electricity, they were promised jobs, but the truth is that the towns affected by Betania, that used to be rural, dignified towns where you could have a life project around cocoa growing, doing small-scale agriculture. These towns became ghost towns. It happened to be that someone I knew was doing activism in the region so I could come and visit. And I find myself arriving and visiting and learning from communities who are already organized and politically active against the company. And so I see that Everyday gestures have become politicized, you know, when you're about to be kicked out of your house because of eminent domain laws that say this dam is good for the nation, you have to be displaced and give way for the dam or for the roads or for whatever other infrastructure that comes along with the dam. And you say, no, I'm staying home. Staying home, which is the, the most basic gesture, becomes politicized. Continuing to fish in a river that's becoming privatized becomes politicized. But they were also organizing in extraordinary ways, not only in this everyday gestures. For example, camping in the middle of the road, blocking the access of the workers to the construction site, sometimes for more than 30 days at a time. And then, you know, obliging the company to negotiate better compensation. Through these more extraordinary and direct actions, they got the company to do a new census. They got the Superior Court in Colombia to pronounce a sentence that acknowledges that people are affected by dams in Colombia and that there is displacement 
of people by dams in Colombia. And let's remember that Colombia is the country with most internally displaced people. We have six million of internally displaced people. But the rhetoric is that it, they're displaced because of the war or the narco war or the guerrilla war. But progress, quote unquote, extractivism displaces people. During the construction of the dam, the company bought all these lands and prohibited any sort of agricultural activity, which brought, like, really hunger, hunger to the, to the region. And people were starving for a while. Plus, you have an influx of workers coming into the region to build the dam from different parts of the country, things that we know as man camps that also brought prostitution, drug-related activities that were not that before, that increased rent prices. So suddenly there's no jobs, but all the cost of living increases. So it was very hard moments for the community while the dam was being constructed. Now the dam is in operation, and I think the community is in a phase of dealing with their big trauma, of not seeing the river as they knew it. Even elders passed because of the grief of seeing that the river was disappearing. And, and it's a moment of learning how to live with this new shape, this body of water. And also of great organizing, because as I said before, there's 15 dams slated to be constructed. So people are very aware of that and are already organizing against these other dams that are in the line. Together with Jonathan Luna, who is the person who kindly invited me to visit the region for the first time and who became my collaborator in the whole process and project that we call geochoreographies. Uh, and so a series of actions happened. And, and these are some of the images that probably are more well known about the projects where, for example, one of these final actions is that we write with our bodies the, the phrase Rios Vivos, which means living rivers. And we use a drone to photograph that action and as a way to hack that view from above, right, which is the militaristic, the bombardier view, and to say and to imprint a living message. Like, this is not an empty space. We are here and this is our river. It's living and we're living here. It's really interesting to see how in the Pacific Northwest we have examples of rivers being freed because dams have come down. The most important example is the Elwa River in Washington State. The Elwa River is born in the Olympic Mountains in the Olympic Peninsula and flows north to the Juan de Fuca Strait into the sea. It uh, traverses Clallam territory. And it had two very old dams, over a hundred years old, that were constructed for mill operations. And they came down in the last seven years or ten years. That had been a river that used to house the spawning of salmon, where salmon would come up and spawn that would feed all that beautiful primary forest of the Pacific Northwest, and that would be sacred for the Clallam people. There were almost two to three generations of Clallam people that didn't have access to their sacred sites because they were under the water. And when the dams came down, the sacred sites emerged out of the reservoir. And suddenly, a new generation of Clallam people actually could see with their eyes and touch with their hands their sacred stone 
and places that they had only heard about. So there is a possibility of healing when dams come down. And you know what happened? Salmon came back after the first year. They remembered and they came back all the way to the upper parts of the river. That doesn't mean that the spawning happened because the silt and the toxicity left behind by the dam is still there. But the movement of the salmon coming up and trying to spawn is happening. The thing is that the little fish don't survive all that debris and silt that is still there, but the, the river is washing away slowly, slowly at its own pace. So the Elwa is a great example of what happens when dams come back and it happened even quicker than anyone imagined. Republican representative Mike Simpson has put forward a, a project asking Congress to look for money to undam the Snake River. So there's a political momentum too. So we are seeing a change in the imaginary of politicians, of civic society, because we saw what happened in the Elwa. And, and that's already a huge example that healing is possible, environmental healing is possible, community healing is possible when dams come down. Carolina Caicedo is a multimedia artist based in Los Angeles. Born to Colombian parents, Caicedo's art practice is based on environmental research focusing on the future of shared resources, environmental justice, energy transition, and cultural biodiversity. I heard this in a DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion workshop, uh, about a couple of years ago. And at that time, I definitely visibly shook my head no and had my arms crossed. I may be scoffed. The goal specifically is for social justice. Okay, I'm in. Full and equal participation of all groups in a society that is mutually shaped to meet every group's needs. The distribution of resources is equitable and all members feel physically and psychologically safe and secure. Inclusive and affirming of human agency and human capacities for working collaboratively to create change. Yes, I'm down for that revolution. But after the facilitator read that goal and process for social justice, my reaction must have caught her attention because she asked me for my reaction uh, or my thoughts on what she had just read to us. And after some hesitation, I said, it doesn't exist. And then I started to cry. Oh, I'm not surprised. And I'm also struck by the ways that the definition struck you as a chimera, a thing that is hoped for but impossible to achieve. And it occurs to me that living in a state of injustice limits our ability to imagine. For me, freedom and justice are very closely tied. There was a moment, very famous moment, when a reporter asked Nina Simone for her definition of freedom. And she says, in Nina Simone fashion, which is inimitable, she says, you want to know what freedom is to me? No fear. 
And justice is that to me. Felita Hicks strikes me as a writer who has met unexpected and dire consequence and in the aftermath pursues creative and legislative justice with a measure of fearlessness. Poet and BMI Shearing Fellow Felita Hicks is the author of the response to the document that was intended to grant life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all. In this piece, Felita Hicks confronts and deconstructs the promises of that founding document and writes towards a more just world. Here's Felita. A personal declaration of liberation. I inherited my fire, a moving protest against my policed body and mind. The pursuit of my joy, then, is a shadow act towards liberation. I inherited my fire. It overtakes me, same as it did the authors of the Declaration of Independence. Authors who, when faced with the never-ending oppression of a patriarchal system, sent up bullets and bombs, designing a flag and a new democratic system that matched their vision of a more equitable world. Where I and the forefathers diverge is in our contemporary definitions of freedom and happiness, natural rights and independence. While an eloquent and prescient document, the Declaration, as it is currently, leaves too much to be desired. One Christmas, to my parents' chagrin, I asked for a book on human anatomy and science. Somewhere between Bill Nye the Science Guy and LeVar Burton's The Reading Rainbow, I realized that if I wanted to live a life that wasn't filled with the constant lack I experienced as a child, I would need to be educated, more upwardly mobile, a doctor. I needed to become a doctor. A doctor made a lot of money and people respected what doctors had to say. At least that's what I used to think. I would become a doctor, make my mark on society and become so famous we would never have to move again. Even at the age of 12, I was dreaming up ways to save us. In my young mind, education equaled freedom from the tyranny of overpriced bills, houselessness, mental instabilities, domestic violence, starvation, and fear. I would watch news clips about little white girls who saved thousands of dollars for college by collecting pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters in their piggy banks. After my mother left my dad, we would drive into the west side of Austin, Texas, where the rich neighborhoods were, and sneak our way down the streets filled with huge mansions, stopping to look into the homes with tall walls made out of glass windows. Who lives here? I would sometimes ask. Probably a doctor or a lawyer, my mother would answer. And I would sit back, nervous about being caught in our bullet hole covered hoopty in front of such pretty homes and tell myself that no matter what it took, I would get my degree, become someone great and guarantee my, our, freedom. As an adult, I discovered that freedom was not something that came with a cap and gown. No matter how hard I tried, the system I lived in 
was not designed for me to survive or thrive in. Over and over again, I tried to pull on the chain of mandatory employment and social propriety, but I still couldn't get free. Freedom, justice, liberation, words that history has both exalted and demonized. They conjure in some minds the worst of our collective fears, a never-ending battle against our inheritance of white supremacy. To free our communities from the long arm of white supremacy, the self-indulgent system that negates its own multicultural origins for the sake of becoming a dominant caste that controls the dispersal of resources by preventing or oppressing the movements of others, the individual must first learn how to enact liberation in their mind, body, and spirit. What rarely arrives in our imaginations when we hear or see or feel the word liberation is the vision of our world free and healed. Instead, liberation comes loaded with images of the struggle towards it. Stoic shadows bending and flexing over never-ending fields of cotton. Blocks and blocks of black fist raised over the heads of thousands of screaming, tear-stained faces. Wearing sirens and bloodthirsty local militias pointing wartime gear at unarmed civilians. Spittle flinging from large pink mouths turned red from the heat and chant and memories of a time of certainty. Decades of photos and albums and films and books from long silence iconoclast burning and sprawling piles outside of elementary schools. A setting sun perched overhead the publicly executed and still warm bodies of strangers turned overnight martyrs for the cause. But liberation, the very act of setting ourselves free, is the catalyst that brings us closer to community homesteads filled with fresh and colorful foods and livestock, inner cities filled with green streets and laughing children, redistributed homes filled with mended families, smiling faces surviving to long age and thriving beside the loves of their lives, a government that bows before the will of its many communities as opposed to the one. Creativity uncaged and undeterred by capitalism. Workers who offer their unique services to others out of desire as opposed to requirement. Accountability as a collective effort instead of a punitive measure. Borders as an arbitrary sign of distance traveled as opposed to a designation of where our country's cage begins. The opposite of pain and trauma Joy and healing are the bounty the marginalized ache for. This concept of liberation was not taught in any of my classes. From elementary to grad school, I had heard the word before and passing, had even intuited its meaning, but I had never stopped to consider what its purpose might be until I was confronted by it in the mid-2010s and then again in October 2019. 
Sitting in a room filled with hundreds of people who had been previously incarcerated or detained, like me, during a detention watch network convening in Birmingham, Alabama, I finally began to understand the importance of defining the term liberation for myself. On one side of me sat a trans woman from Haiti who had been detained and placed in a holding cell with men. On the other side of me sat an Asian-American man who had been incarcerated from the age of 14 to the age of 30. Throughout the convening, I met marginalized people whose lives had been disrupted by a system that claimed it was unequivocally fair and just, though the lives and trials of those around me were proof of the opposite. By the end of the convening's first day, I was exhausted. I had always known that something was wrong with North America's system, had felt its negative effects myself to the point of taking on the mantras of some liberal movements. But I had not stopped to reflect on the overwhelming case against the current structure of our country's so-called justice system. Who or what was to be blamed for the brokenness of so many lives? Sitting up in bed that night, I asked myself, what am I supposed to do about this? How am I supposed to get involved? There's so much that's wrong about how our country operates. And there are so many people who have already tried to change the system already. What impact could I possibly have? How am I supposed to help others find liberation? Years later, I still don't have all the answers. My liberation was a slow and arduous process and lasted for more than a decade. My many failed attempts at a higher education, the numerous many nights sleeping at bus stops, the sexual assaults, the arrests, the loss of my church, the loss of my partner, the loss of my child, the never-ending bills. I had been searching for my paradise, the place where I was free from my oppressions, and I had found it, and poetry. The power of language had saved me, had literally brought me forth into a world I would not have otherwise known and given me a foundational platform on which to build my dream life. To start healing, I had to know the root of my pain and then acknowledge it. Why would the process be any different for this country? If so many people are hurt, shouldn't we dive in and pinpoint the origin of the pain? Shouldn't we acknowledge it and then try to heal it? The problem is that the stories we have been told about who we are as a nation, the ones that have been curated to match the needs and desires of the people who benefit most from the dereliction of the growing majority, white cis men, have misconstrued the notions of right and wrong, good and bad. Stereotypes and harmful beliefs have prevented us from successfully cultivating a free and just society. To manifest liberation for all the people in the United States, I believe we must first prioritize the stories and experiences of the historically marginalized and then use the wisdom of their lessons to design a new declaration that is unerringly for and of all of the people. To reach a societal paradise, 
We will need to create a new, wider path for us all to journey on. Today, scholars from all backgrounds revel in the sophistication and complexities of our Founders' Declaration of Independence. They praise the memorandum that has guided the structuring of our government, our laws, our communities, and our lives, rarely acknowledging the racial bias, amongst other bias, built into the critical document, and therefore the foundation of our country. But almost 250 years after its ratification, the inherent faults of the Declaration have become so detrimental to the quality of life for millions, it is necessary for us now to consider significantly overhauling the failing systems of our country. As a writer, I know that great revisions are not only powerful, but necessary. I can only assume that the co-writers and editors of the Declaration of Independence and their white audience, knew in some manner that their proclamations would be scrutinized and revised, if not altogether thrown out, should the marginalized gain full autonomy of their selves. The safeguards embedded in the Declaration, and then the U.S. Constitution, were designed to prevent the upward mobility and full liberation of the marginalized, not to protect the rights of all people, but to protect the rights of those that were in power at the time of its creation. From arguments about the use of words like happiness, as opposed to property, to the ongoing debates about the grammar and its role in legislative interpretations, and the significance of our country's most prominent protesters turned country's founders regulating the protest of their own people, it is evident that the intentions of the colonizing founders was not to protect the inalienable rights of all, but to create a system in which they alone thrived and those they did not like didn't. As a storytelling tool, the Declaration of Independence is a concise document that encapsulates the founders' beliefs about themselves and about what a country should be. And it was effective because of its short length and directness. Any new declaration would need to be just as effective in its technique and design. How would we deftly describe a vision for a new society that embraced the intersectional experiences of this country's people? Again, I have no answer, just a draft. And in this draft, I proclaim first what liberation is for myself and then what it might be for all of us. In my wildest dreams, I see this draft as the opening remarks in a long and meaningful conversation with our policymakers and leaders about the actual restructuring of our government and laws. I take creative liberties here, though not enough in my opinion. Eventually, I hope to strip away all of the language in the original declaration and convene with this country's greatest minds to establish wholly new and relevant language in its place. Until then, I share with you my Declaration of Liberation, a proposal on the rewrite of the current memorandum. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by nature with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberation, sustainability, health, 
and the pursuit of joy. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter Felita Hicks is the author of Hoodwitch and the former editor-in-chief of Borderlands Texas Poetry Review. They were a fall 2021 Shearing Fellow for Black Mountain Institute. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sara Ortiz is the architect and host. And Seasons 2 wonderful co-host is my dear friend and colleague and community leader, Erica Vitalazar. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our fantastic producers. Additional production and sound design by Ariel Mejia. This episode was edited by Nicole Kelly and Sreista Sen. Our production assistants for this season are Sylvia Fox and Sunny Brown. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Niej Borges. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Copy editing by Summer Tomad. And a special shout out to our engineer back there in the booth, Hey Kevin Crawl. Special thanks to our contributors in this episode. Carolina Caicedo, Felita Hicks, Jocelyn Jackson, and Cheyenne Kyle. And thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gumbiner, Haley Patel, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening.